Father, what a privilege to have these words in front of us this morning. We tremble before you. We long to hear you speak through your word into our lives with words of hope, of encouragement, of challenge, and of love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is it possible for God to ask too much? We just heard one of the most well-known and indeed infamous sections of the Old Testament. It is known to Jewish people as the Akeda, the binding of Isaac. And in a slightly different version, it's also found in the Quran. It's celebrated by Muslims each year at El uh, at Eid al-Adha, the festival of the sacrifice. It's a story that grips the imagination. And it's a story that at face value is absolutely extraordinary. And it's shocking, terrifying even, from the point of view of a believer of Je- uh, uh, a follower of Jesus seeking to live faithfully before God. In our sermons through the life of Abraham, we've seen Abraham facing a series of tests through his life. The test of famine, the test of plenty, the test of delay, the test of repeated failure, all with mixed results. And alongside that, there have been extraordinary promises from God, getting deeper and more specific as time went on, climaxing after 25 years of waiting in the birth of Isaac, as we saw last week, if you were here. And with Isaac came laughter. And rejoicing, praise the Lord. He had provided a son for Abraham and Sarah in their extreme old age. And so after that, chapter 22 hits us like a sledgehammer. What is this story of human sacrifice? What could God mean by demanding Abraham to sacrifice his son? And how was Abraham able to go through with it? until stopped by the angel. What kind of God is this, who one moment makes and keeps wonderful and miraculous promises against all the odds, and then the next moment snatches it away again? Isn't it just too much for God to demand of Abraham that he sacrifice his son? For many people, at face value, this confirms their worst suspicions about God. That he's sitting up there playing games with people's lives for his own entertainment. You know, yes, he's God, and yes, he's all-powerful, and yes, he's in control, but actually, is that good news? Because, frankly, he cannot be trusted to bring about good, many people would say. All of us have got different people or things or situations that we think, I fear that one day... God might ask me to give up that person or thing or situation, and I don't think I could do that. That would be too much. You know, there are some things I'm quite happy to give, you know, some of my money, some of my time, some of my energy, whatever it might be. You know, I'll I'll devote as much of those things as necessary to following Jesus. But touch my family, my career, my livelihood, my reputation, even life itself, and I wouldn't know what to do. And the thought is pretty terrifying. If you're, if you're a young person at school, 
would you comfortably give up friendships, reputation, even the prospect of academic success? Because following Jesus is even more important. For others, it might be a slightly different thought. It might be, do you know what? God has already taken one of those things. Or he has seemingly denied them to me, despite my prayers and my longings. It's left me raw. It's left me struggling to go on, dealing daily with fundamental questions about whether I can really trust God as I move forwards. If any of those scenarios sounds familiar, then we've begun to understand just a little of what it would have felt like to be Abraham in this unique test in these verses. So let's look at it in more detail in chapter 22 and see what it means, what it meant for him, but also what it means for us in our lives today. And we're going to see in so many ways that this is an utterly extraordinary account. In other words, there is nothing that is ordinary here, or very little. There is an extraordinary command, which is met with extraordinary obedience, which is then interrupted by extraordinary provision and followed by an extraordinary promise. So let's see that then. Firstly, you can see on the back of the notice sheet, if you want to follow through, an extraordinary command from verses 1 and 2. An extraordinary command. From the start in verse 1, we know something that Abraham does not know until after the angel has intervened and stopped him from bringing the knife down on his son. We know that this is a test. And tests may well make us think of you know, exams and pass marks and fear of failure. And it might make us ask, why does God have to test Abraham? He's already declared Abraham right with him. Why must he now be tested? But in the Bible, when God tests his people, the sense is much more positive that he is using something hard or something painful to refine our faith. Like a precious metal. When you dig it out of the ground, it's full of impurities. But you put it in fire and the impurities are burnt up and all you are left with is the much tougher, precious metal, far more shiny and valuable than before. You see, tests refine and bring out what was there all along so that we might trust God alone and not be trusting in anyone or anything else in the place of God. So what does he say? Take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. We get the point, don't we? This is not just any child. We don't know how old Isaac is by this point, though we can guess that from what happens that he's at least a teenager, if not older. But this is the longed-for, promised son. Abraham's one and only, his last and only son, we presume, because there's no way they'd be able to have any more. Yes, he had Ishmael through Hagar, but this is his only son of the promise. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So what on earth is going on with this? Well, from the outset, it's worth saying that one of the reasons this is so shocking is precisely because the rest of the Bible is so clear that human sacrifice, child sacrifice, are absolute no-no's. They're what pagan and godless cultures do, not what God's people do. So why say this here? Well, Barack Obama, no less, 
referenced this passage in a speech that he made before he became president about the relationship between uh, religion and public policy. And he wanted to say that you can't look to the Bible to form public policy. And the example that he gave was this chapter. And he said that if this happened today with Abraham and Isaac, we would call the police and we would expect the Department of Children and Family Services to take Isaac away from Abraham. And to some degree, at least, he's he's got a point, hasn't he? How can God command such a thing? What is the difference between God commanding this and a man from Utah in the States? This is a true story. This man... He killed his sister-in-law and 15-month-old niece. And he claimed afterwards that he had a handwritten revelation from God that prompted his actions. He said, You would think I have committed a crime of homicide, but I have not. I was doing the will of God, which is not a crime. Now, any right-thinking human being, let alone any right-thinking Christian, would want to say, Well, that is crazy! But okay, what's the difference then with what happens here? And this is where it's helpful to remember that we can't just substitute ourselves into the story of Abraham and assume that what happens to him is exactly what happens to us. This story is often interpreted as being about how Abraham needed to exercise a blind leap of faith in God. You know, as if it's it's saying, it doesn't matter what God says to you. The point is you've just got to do it, no matter what. But that isn't what's happening here at all. See, the the thing that sets Abraham apart from crackpot murderers who think they've heard the voice of God is chapters 12 to 21 in the book of Genesis. This command that God gives to Abraham is not the first thing he's ever said to him. If this had been what God had said to Abraham back in chapter 12 at the beginning, well, that would be a different story, as if he appeared to him out of the blue and said, this is what you're going to do. But he doesn't. Think now what Abraham knows of God as he hears this command. What has he learned over all these chapters, over all those tests? He fundamentally knows God can be trusted. He is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And he's seen that through a very specific and unique set of events in his life. It's been said that murderers and the deranged can borrow the language of this chapter, chapter 22, but they can't borrow the context. You see, because unless you have also been called to be the father of many nations, and unless you also have been given very specific promises regarding your son, well, this command in verse 2 is never going to come to you in this form. Because verse 2 is not all that God has said to Abraham about Isaac. God has also said that it is through Isaac that the promises will continue. So do you see what's going on here? This is about whether Abraham will trust God to provide what is needed to keep his word. Or whether, in fact, he will say, do you know what, God, you've got this one wrong. You know, yes, you've made a promise that the line will continue through Isaac, but not like this. I know better than you. So Abraham faces a choice. And if that's still puzzling, then we need to read on. And after the extraordinary command comes, secondly, extraordinary obedience. Verses 3 to 10, extraordinary obedience. 
How did Abraham sleep that night? Perhaps not that well. Verse 3, he sets about his morning chores after he uh, rises early. He sets about his morning chores in a strange order. He saddles the donkey and then he's like, oh no. Then Then he goes to get the wood. It's like turning the car engine on before you've loaded the boot. He's under pressure. And like Abraham has done before, then, in obedience to God's word, he and Isaac and some servants set out. Off they go. They travel for a day, then another day. What do they talk about for all that time? We're not told. On the third day, he sees the place. And verse 5 contains the first real evidence that Abraham senses that this story will not finish with a death. I and the boy are going over there. We will worship, do you see? And what does it say? Then we will come back to you. How is that possible? Well, verse 8 fleshes it out. Where is the lamb? Isaac asks. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. What does he mean? Well, it's not yet clear. And as far as we know, this is not based on direct revelation from God. This is reasoned faith based on what Abraham believes and trusts about God. So this is extraordinary obedience on the part of Abraham. But Isaac similarly obeys with total trust. Do you see verse 7? A trusting question from son to father. We have the fire and the wood, so we obviously just lack a lamb. Dad will know the answer. I can ask him. I can trust him, Isaac reasons. And then we gasp as Isaac submits to being bound by his father. Remember verse 6, he's big enough to carry all the wood. It says boy in verse 5, but youth is probably a more accurate translation of that. This isn't a child being passively bound. This is a teenager or, or even an adult male submitting willingly and obediently to what his father is asking of him. And the shocking climax comes. Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And we wonder what on earth is going on through his head. Is he, is he really intending to go through with this? And the, reading, the first reading we heard from Hebrews helps us here. What does it say? Let me read it to you again a little bit. It said, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Then verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So do you see, this isn't a blind, crazy, foolish leap of faith. This is reasoned trust in God, uniquely based on all that Abraham knew of God and the particular and specific promises he had made to him about his son. Again, remember, we'll think about how this applies to us a bit later, but this reasoning is unique to Abraham, who had received these very specific promises. Because Abraham knew two things. God has said... It is through Isaac that his offspring would come. And God has said, Isaac must be sacrificed. So what is his conclusion? 
God must be about to raise the dead. Do you see the difference between Abraham and us? None of us could stand there at the top of a mountain, God forbid, with a child and think, oh, well, I can, I can stand here and, and with a dagger and God will raise the dead. Well, no, God hasn't made that promise to us. But he had made it to Abraham that through his offspring, the promise would continue. And so he reasons. God must be about to raise the dead. And so he raises the knife. But then, verse 3, sorry, uh, third point, extraordinary provision. Extraordinary provision from verses 11 to 14. The call comes from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. There's, there's double urgency to this. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What does he mean then, fearing God? Well, fearing God is not about being scared of him, but about respecting him, honouring him. We saw this last year in Proverbs, if you were here. This test has proved that Abraham's greatest treasure is God himself which is what we were created for, to know God, to enjoy relationship with him, to live for him now and forever. He has to come first. And it's only when he comes first that we can properly love and enjoy his creatures and his creation. And in the thicket we discover God has indeed provided a ram. Isaac is figuratively received back from death and in his place a ram dies we discover later in the bible in two chronicles that when it comes to building the temple in jerusalem it is right here on this mountain mount moriah where the first sacrifice of a ram took place that the temple is built and day after day substitutionary animal sacrifices take place for the sins of God's people. And from that then follows, finally, extraordinary promise, verses 15 to 19. Extraordinary promise. Well, verse 16, the voice comes again. I swear by myself, this is even more solemn than previously, what, what does he swear? That you will be blessed. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. We've heard that before, but now there's a new metaphor. The sand on the seashore. And take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations will be blessed, just as God promised from the beginning in chapter 12. And that's where we come in today. Do you see the nations who today are blessed and included in the family of Abraham? That is who we are if we're trusting in Jesus. On what, on what basis can we be included? Well, verse 16, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. And verse 18, because you have obeyed me. We've seen this is a, a unique test that Abraham faced, but it's a unique test with universal consequences. As Abraham obeys, the promised line is able to continue through Isaac. So that verse 18, through his offspring, who's his offspring, who's that talking about? Well, it's talking in the end, isn't it, about Jesus. Through his offspring, the promise would come to all nations and they would be blessed. Why should Abraham's test affect the whole of human history? 
Well, because it turns out what happens here was just a foretaste, a shadow of an even greater test. As we read this, we're shocked at how God could ask Abraham to do such a heart-wrenching, horrible thing as to sacrifice his own son as a burnt offering. But in the end, God wasn't asking Abraham to do anything that he was not willing to do himself and more. There are many echoes in this story of the willing sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Did you spot them as we went through? Did anything resonate? Isaac is your son, your son whom you love, verse 2. At Jesus' baptism and later at his transfiguration, a voice comes from heaven, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There is the mention of the lamb which would have made Moses' readers think immediately of the Passover where a perfect substitute died in the place of the firstborn in each family. Which in turn points to the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. There is the obedience of Isaac heading willingly yet innocently to death. Jesus too was no passive victim. He actively chose to obey his father's will by going to his death. And there are the little details, too, of the the wood being carried up the hill towards death, like the cross being dragged through the streets. There is that reference to the third day when Abraham vigorously receives Isaac back from death. There are many links, little shadows, greater shadows, which as an aside is remarkable when you consider that this is 1,500 years before Jesus. Why should his story match this one? in such detail. But there is a twist in the tale, isn't there? Because 1,500 years after this, the obedient son walked to the top of a hill. But there was no intervention. There was no voice from heaven. Instead, the sky went dark as the father turned his face away in judgment on his innocent son. There was no ram in the thicket because Jesus himself was the substitute. So that despite our sin, his people could be blessed with new life, forgiveness, eternity with him. If it was said of Abraham, now I know that you fear God, that you love God in other words, we can now say of God, now we know that you love us. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son. That's summed up in Romans chapter 8 verse 32, our opening verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How can we trust God with those we love? How can we know if we would cope if he he took what is dearest from us? How can we carry on if that is already happening or or has happened already? Even with life itself, when one day, sooner or later, we look death in the face, will we meet it with abject fear and terror? Or will we trust in a God who has provided a saviour who went all the way to the cross and died 
as a sacrifice, a substitute for sin, and who therefore we can trust that he will provide whatever we need, whatever the future brings. He says to this, I've got this, and I am good. And on the other side of death for ourselves, on the other side of death for our loved ones and the things and the situations we think we could not live without, the things where we think it would be too much if God asked for that, on the other side of all of that is resurrection. Abraham believed that, and that is why he acted as he did. Do you believe that? We can believe it, because if we're trusting in Jesus, then we have a saviour who went to the cross for us and died and rose. It's often not death itself which terrifies Christians, although it might be. It's, It's often everything that goes around it, the effect on loved ones left behind. How will they cope? How will I cope if it's me in that situation? Often we can't answer those questions till we get there. That's how it was for Abraham. He didn't walk to the top of the hill knowing that Isaac would definitely not die. He walked knowing that God is good and God is certain to keep his promises. There's a difference, isn't there? But he knew he could trust that God would provide. God will provide. We don't know how, but we know he will. This is the opposite of a blind leap of faith. Do you see? It's conscious, it's reasoned, it's reasonable faith on the basis of all we know about God and his character and what he's already given us in Christ. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, in this God, can you see how this is fundamentally different from the other belief systems in the world, which always come down to calling human beings... in different ways, to sacrifice ourselves or things we love in order to gain eternal life or happiness. They're always systems that demand everything and suck us dry. Even secularism, atheism, is fundamentally a system where sacrifice is required, but reward is not guaranteed. We say we're horrified by child sacrifice, but how many in our culture are ready and willing to sacrifice family for the sake of career. It's the same thing, isn't it? But God says, I will provide. I have provided the one sacrifice that is necessary for you to be right with me. So trust in Jesus. And you will find that you can trust me with your whole life, no matter what. That's what he calls us to today. He's not a God who takes, but a God who gives everything. You can't outgive God. And so then today we can say with Paul, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things.